This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Uh, welcome to our guests. We are in the middle of a series, actually in the latter part of the series now, um, here this summer called Urban Legends. This is number seven. We've got three more to go after today. And uh, so thank you for coming and being with us this morning. We're talking about dumb things that smart Christians believe, all right? Things that we just kind of take for granted that it must be in the Bible somewhere, but then we find out it's not. And today's urban legend is the thought of let your conscience be your guide, the Jiminy Cricket Code of Ethics that says personal, personal conscience trumps all. As long as I feel okay about what I've done, then I've done no wrong. Like the guy last week who killed all those people in Norway, obviously was convinced in his heart that he was doing the right thing. He had a cause that he believed in, and his conscience led him to, to kill all those people and those young people. But apparently his conscience suffers from some kind of insanity, yet it was his guide. Now, you're probably not insane this morning, although I don't take that for granted. I don't think that I'm insane But even if I'm not, does that mean that my conscience, that your conscience, is good enough to trust? Well, the Bible says no. Here's the problem with saying I'll trust my conscience. Jeremiah, there's a great verse in Jeremiah that that you ought to uh, to underline in your Bible, you ought to memorize, you ought to know. In fact, I want us to say it all, uh, just read it all together aloud. It's Jeremiah Chapter 17, verse 9. Read it with me, will you? It's up on the screen. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart. Whose heart? Your heart, my heart, is deceitful, the Bible says. More deceitful than any, anything else. Guess who my heart, or if you want to say it, my conscience deceives more than anyone else. Guess who? Me. Yeah, yourself. It loves to tell me something's okay when really it isn't. It loves to tell me what I want to hear, which may not be the truth. And if somebody else has a better or more objective understanding of what's true or right than I do at a given time, and that person tries to tell me what I don't want to hear, I can always fall back on saying, okay, but that may be cool for you, but I'm going to let my heart guide me. I'm going to let my conscience be my guide. And that's a dangerous path to follow. We're going to talk today about why that is. Why why, what's so bad about following your conscience and and really why you need something far more sure to be your guide than your own heart. I don't hide the fact um, around here, and and our folks know, understand this in in, uh, Nagset Church, that counseling is not my forte. It's not my strong suit. It's not my spiritual gift. We have a counseling team here. Pastor Steve, he was just up here a few moments ago leading us in our offering. Steve heads up our counseling team, and we have have some trained, certified Christian counselors here. And so every chance I get when people come to me and say, Rick, I I need some counseling, I direct them uh, Steve's way and to, to that team. And one of the reasons that I avoid counseling whenever I have to get the chance to get away from it, I avoid it like the plague, is that I find it extremely frustrating to sit down with someone or someones and listen to him or her or oftentimes them if it's a couple, 
Listen to them tell me what's going on in their lives, often, not always, but often because of their own foolish or sinful choices that they've made. Listen to all that, and then when I've heard all that, say, okay, let me make some suggestions to you. Here's what the God, God's Word says. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to begin to do. And make some suggestions to them. You need to do this, and then you need to do that, and you need to do that. And to make those suggestions about how, here's how you can work with God and, and, and correct things in your life and put things back together and, and find, you know, that you can move on in your life. And then hear them say something to the effect that, well, you know, but you don't understand. All my problems, those, you're acting like it's my fault. And it's not my fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. Always blaming someone else for what's going on. I've done, you don't understand, Rick, I've done nothing wrong here. My conscience is clear. When someone has lots of self-inflicted wounds and expects for a counselor or even expects for God to fix their mess, yet they won't accept personal responsibility, I'll just be honest with you, there's not much good my counseling can do. So it frustrates me a lot of times. But you might say, well, I watched the film clip there. The good fairy, the blue fairy gave Pinocchio a conscience so he could know she said right from wrong. Isn't that why God gave me a conscience so I could know right from wrong? So it would guide me. Didn't God give each one of us a conscience so that if we feel peace in a situation, peace meaning I feel no guilt, that if I feel peace, it must be the right choice. Now, let me stop and say also, if you've been around here very long, you know, because we've shown from the scriptures and we talk about it a lot, the Bible says that if you're living day by day by your feelings, how you feel about something, you're on a very dangerous path. And therein lies the myth, the urban legend that we should follow our consciences. And if we do, no matter what we do, we've done the right thing. The problem with that way of thinking, the problem with what Pinocchio was told is that it isn't backed up by Scripture. Can't find it. Let me suggest a number of reasons to you this morning why. Number one, if you're jotting things down, my conscience is a spiritual thermostat, not a thermometer. It's a thermostat, not a thermometer. You know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer, don't you? A thermostat sets the temperature at what I feel is comfortable. Sets the temperature at what I feel is comfortable. There are in this room, there are six thermostats around the room on the walls. Four of the six in this room are set on Sunday mornings at 72 degrees because that's kind of the... But everybody says that's pretty comfortable. How many of you are comfortable this morning? Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Okay? And you're comfortable. You're okay with the temperature in the room. Four of them are set at 72. The two that control the air that's up here on this stage, where we have these lights and where it's a bit warmer up here, they're set at 68. To keep it a little bit cooler up here on the stage because of the added heat uh, that comes from the lights. Now, for most of us who are up here, most of the band members, it's fairly comfortable. Although I hear complaints sometimes from, from somebody who works on this side of the, of the stage in the band. I won't mention any names, but that, but that I have to wear a sweater. All right? Sometimes I hear that. 
You'll notice, uh, you can't see it over here on this side of the room, but you all over here can see that Chris actually has a fan sitting over here that blows on him because when he's playing the drums, he gets warmed up. And so he's got a fan blowing because 68's just not cutting it for him in his cage that we keep him in. So he, you know, he does that. But then on the other hand, right beside Chris over here is Buddy playing the guitar. And you'll see Buddy sometimes, he's up here and he's got goosebumps all over him. And it's not because it's just a really cool blazing hot solo he's playing. But because he's cold, in fact, in the wintertime, you'll see Buddy, he'll have long pants, long sleeves, he'll be wearing a coat and trying to play the guitar because, and and the deal is, truthfully about Buddy, he's cold because he's got no fat on his body. You know, he's just all muscle. So what's comfortable for, for one person is not necessarily comfortable for another. A thermostat, which is what your conscience is, lets you set the temperature where you are comfortable. You understand the difference between a, ther- a thermometer? A thermometer doesn't care how you feel. A thermometer just says, here is what the temperature is right now at this moment. But if you don't like what the thermometer says, what do you do? You go and say, stupid thermometer, and you go out and buy another thermometer. Tell the truth now, that's what some of us do with our bathroom scales, isn't it? I don't like what it says, so I'm going to go get another one. You know, you don't go and buy another thermometer. What you do is you go to the thermostat and you change the thermostat so the thermometer reads where you are comfortable. But the thermometer just tells the truth. It says, here's what it is. Your conscience is, is like a thermostat. It responds to your, like a, a thermostat that responds to your definition of what is comfortable. You and I define hot and cold. Thermostats do, do that. Now, it's yours, your con- conscience. You set it to the standards that you choose. Nobody chooses your conscience for you. Nobody else sets your thermostat. That's yours alone to set. You determine whether it kicks in or whether it stays idle. It doesn't tell us, by the way, my thermostat nor yours, They don't tell me or tell you whether or not I violated God's standards. They only tell me if I violated my standards, all right, your personal standards. But get this, secondly, my conscience is very easy to reset. I can reset the thermostat a lot if I want to. All of us, you think about it, what do you mean, Rick? If we thought about it, each one of us in this room can identify things that at one time in our lives we thought to be wrong or sinful or immoral, but now if we see it, if we hear it, maybe even if we participate in it, maybe now it doesn't bother us, at least not so much. Some of us in the room are old enough to remember television in the 1960s, all right? Now, and, and those of you who are not old enough, you've watched enough TV land and that kind of thing. And you remember those old TV programs in the night? They were just all wholesome, even the shoot 'em up cowboy movies. It was pre- you never heard any vulgarity. You never heard any profanity in those programs. It was all pretty much squeaky clean as far as what they said. And, uh, and that's the way it used to be. I mean, for Pete's sake, couples, married couples weren't even allowed to be shown sleeping in the same bed, you know, in, their, in, the, in the situation comedies. Remember Rob and Laura Petri, you know? And, and, and I'd watch those shows and I'd you know, see in their bedroom or, Rick, or, or, or uh, Ricky and Lucy, you know, in separate beds. And, uh, and, I, and I think, 
I don't get it because my mom and dad, they just have this one bed that they sleep in and here are these married couples on TV. Maybe you're supposed to sleep in separate. Maybe that's better because Hollywood says it is and I found out Hollywood was lying. It isn't better. So, you know, so that'll sink into some of you here pretty soon. But, you know, but slowly over time, coarse language began to be introduced on television programs, didn't it? Uh, you, and you may remember the first time you were watching, maybe it was your favorite show, and somebody slipped in a dam or a hell, and you just kind of went, what? Did you, did you hear that? I can't believe that. Don't they know children are still up and still watching? And we were shocked. And, and you know, mom, mom reached over and turned, you know, she had to reach over and turn off the TV because there were no remotes back then. Reach over and turn the, t- or switch the channel because of that kind of language. The Lord was upset too. He's... <laughs> At first we were shocked, but you watch almost any primetime TV show now. Almost anything, past the game shows, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, anything that comes on after that, you watch them and you'll hear the most vile and vulgar talk. And it's not just the guys, it's the girls too. And we watch it now and we accept it and it doesn't really bother us anymore. You know what's happened? We've reset our thermostats, right? The more and more we're exposed to something, the more desensitized we, we become to it. And because of the environment in which we live, including church, we're constantly punching the reset button. This used to be wrong, but now I'm not so sure. This used to be okay for me to do, but now I think maybe I should quit doing that. It's easy to reset your thermostat. But this is also true. Number three, my conscience is like a seesaw. Up and down, this side and that side. Like some of you, I grew up in in a legalistic kind of church where I was told that Christians couldn't go to the movies, we couldn't play cards, we couldn't listen to rock music, we couldn't dance to it without committing gross sin. If you did any of those things, you were in danger of hellfire. My mom would not let us, on Monday nights, when I was 11 years old, would not let us watch the monkeys on TV. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. Remember that? She wouldn't let us watch that program because they were a vile rock and roll band. People say we're monkeying around. She didn't want to know what that monkeying around was. But then... During that period of time, I remember I was in sixth grade. I was 11 years old, and, and it was that, that's when Andy was born. And back in those days, when, when a woman had a baby, she went to the hospital, and she stayed there for like a month, you know? It's just, today, it's kind of outpatient thing, you know? And, and, and I think women are stronger today, maybe. I don't know. But, <laughs> but anyway, mom had to go in the hospital for several days. Dad was over in Southeast Asia fighting a war, and so... Uh, here were our four of us kids at home, and so Grandma came down to stay with us. And you know how grandmas are. Grandma didn't know the monkeys were evil, sinful things. She had no clue. And we weren't going to tell her either. So Grandma's there, and Monday night comes around, and TV turns on, and one of us turns the TV on, and we make sure we turn to the channel that the monkeys are on. And Grandma never said a word. And we got to watch the monkeys at one time only. And it ruined my life, you know. 
Now, there were lots of rules. Some actually were in the Bible. I guess most probably were not. But as a young Christian, I accepted what I heard as being taboo, and I stayed away from those things even though I wondered why. I mean, before my parents became Christians, I, remember I used to go to the movies all the time as a boy. And then suddenly my parents became Christians and we got into this church where movie going was of the devil and it was, you know, you don't go to the movies because then you start running with that guy. And so I remember after graduating from college years later, and by the way, Gail and I went to a college where movies were banned. You couldn't go to the movie theater. And they've eased up quite a bit since then at that school. But Gail and I went, after we graduated, we went to see a movie, went to the theater, said, we're going to be really rebellious. And we went to a movie and, and watched this movie. And I can remember sitting in this movie theater, first time in my life in about 10 years, feeling guilty about it. My conscience was in conflict. But you know, as I grew as a Christian, I began to study the Bible, and I asked some really probing questions about some of those rules that govern my conscience where my thermostat was set, and I found out things like, you know, well, Jesus really did make wine for a wedding reception, and, and I learned that God was more concerned with that what was in my heart than what was in my refrigerator, and I became free to watch the monkeys anytime I wanted. And once again, my conscience was being realigned. It's on a seesaw. But there was and still is in my life and I'm, here's many, many years later, decades later, still is in my life a battle that wages within me. You know, back in the old pre-Christian unsaved days, that conscience says, just do whatever you want to do. doesn't make any difference. God doesn't care. We're free to do whatever, right? And then my, my early Christian, very legalistic values constantly are pulling me, saying, no, no, you need to revert, and you need to see evil in everything. But then my, what does the Bible really say values that I've acquired as I've grown and studied the Word of God, those values are competing against those other two, and the big question that I struggle with all the time as a Christian is this. Are my convictions based on God's word and based on the Holy Spirit nudging my conscience, or is it really just my preference and maybe not even God's? Was it normal to seesaw like that in your conscience? And I think the answer is, yeah. And I bet most of you here can relate somehow to my own story. But what that means is this. If my conscience changes, like a seesaw, if I can reset the thermostat whenever, if it changes, then can it be trusted as reliable for making the right choice, especially in spiritual and ethical issues? Because of this, now think, because it can be changed Shouldn't I be looking at something more absolute than my own heart to be the authority in my life? That's why it's never good to say, I'll let my conscience be the final say in what's right or wrong for me. Christian, hear me now. Even when we think we've got our conscience lined up with the Bible. Really? Let me give you an example of somebody who said that very thing. 
You've heard of him. His name's the Apostle Paul. Paul, the guy who wrote so much of the New Testament. And that means simply that God chose him and God inspired him to write these words down. This man, Paul, knew personally not to trust his conscience. As he was writing to the Corinthian church, he was writing about the fact that his own ministry and his motives were being criticized by a lot of people in a lot of churches. They didn't like what he did. They thought he was wrong about some things. And he was defending himself. Can you imagine that not everybody in the church thinks what the preacher does is right? Can you, does that ever cross your mind? And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 about his own conscience, I think is pretty major right here. Listen to what he said. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My, now get this. My conscience, Paul said, is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. Did you get that? Paul said, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm right. It's about what God thinks. Paul was, was saying that, he said, I'm not satisfied to have a clear conscience. Why not? Well, Paul was being honest. Paul said, I know my own shortcomings. He knew that he was at best a sinner saved by grace. He knew that he was still every day, you can read it in Romans 7, every day battling his old sinful self. And so he had lots of good reasons not to trust his conscience as the decider of what was right and wrong in his life. Now, if Paul would admit that, I wouldn't admit that too. You're right, Paul. I probably can't trust my own heart either. Number four in your notes, Christ in me overcomes my sin nature but doesn't erase it. Overcomes it but doesn't erase it. See, all of us, every human being is born with a nature to sin, and we all respond to that nature very well from the earliest days of our childhood. But then if, if you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that you are born again by trusting in him, and when he, you trust in him as Savior, he comes to live in you, and he comes to live in you. One of the things that he does is he overpowers the old sinful desires in your life. But you know, some of you have been a Christian for a long time. I've been a Christian. In fact, it's today, July 31st in 1966 that I said, hey, I want people to know I have just trusted Jesus as Savior. It was about 45 years ago. That's a long time, lo longer than a lot of you have even been alive. And those of you who have walked with the Lord for very many years, you know it's a daily battle dealing with this old nature, with this sinful nature. Putting away the old habits. Putting away the old thought patterns is a lifelong process, and the truth is, sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we fall backwards. And, and by the way, the old nature doesn't just show up in the things that we do that are wrong. It shows up in how we think. It affects our minds. It clouds our thinking, including our understanding of spiritual truth and how God leads. And so, consequently, all of us have our spiritual blind spots, and because of that, that's how two Christians who may be equally committed to living for Christ, yet they can come up with opposite conclusions about what God wants. They disagree because of blind spots. And here's the deal about blind spots. 
They're called blind spots because you can't see them yourself. Other people can see them in you, but you can't see them, so they're blind spots. And the Apostle Paul, who was a man who walked in the Spirit, a man who did miraculous things, a man who wrote a major portion of the New Testament in the Bible, a holy man, that's why the Apostle Paul, he recognized this about himself. I have blind spots. There were times he prayed for things that God didn't want him to have. There were times, he said, when he had discouragement and despair. Once, once he, he, and he tells the story of failing to offer grace to a young man by the name of Mark. Mark, this young man who later in his life, God would say, I want you to write a gospel in the Bible so that people 2,000 years later can read about Jesus. He wasn't a, a wasted young man, but Paul said, I don't want you to be a part of my team because he wimped out on a missions trip. It caused Paul, that same story caused Paul and his, his own spiritual mentor, his best friend Barnabas, to split. Paul trusted some tr- untrustworthy people. Paul even planted some dysfunctional churches. And you would think the Apostle Paul, if he plants a church, that church is never going to have any problems. But they did. You see, he was a human, just like us with a fallen human nature. And he knew that because of that, of that knowledge of his own ability to sin. He knew better than to trust his own conscience. Number five, my conscience is only as good as the data that it's fed. Only as good as the data. What's the old computer expression? Garbage in garbage out. You feed the computer bad stuff, that's what it gets. You invite viruses into your computer, guess what it does? If you feed your mind what you feed your mind, if it's opposite of what God's word is clear about, here's what's going to happen. You're going to wind up feeling really good about some things that are really bad. If you're told that everything that is fun in this world must be evil, you're going to condemn everybody who doesn't walk the line just like you. Even though in secret, you're going to wish you could do those things too. So your conscience is guilty. Or maybe you buy into the idea, this is pretty much the way our culture is today in the United States and the rest of the world for that matter. You buy into the idea that if the majority of the culture accepts something, it must be right. It must be okay. Majority rules. If everybody's, if most of the people, 51% are good with it, it must be the right thing to do. But have you noticed, again, if you're old enough, have you noticed that the conscience of the culture, the conscience of the majority can seesaw, can shift over time? One thing that I've learned is I've studied the Word of God and read the Bible and the stories, especially about when the majority made a decision, it seems like that whatever the majority of the world thinks is okay, God's usually shaking his head, thinking the opposite. Number six, my conscience can become calloused. Calloused. When you play the guitar over and over, like, like Buddy does, you play the guitar over and over again, the tips of your fingers get calloused. They, I mean, they're literally calluses build on the tips of your fingers where you press against the strings. When you first start out to play, and some of you have tried taking guitar lessons, and you tried it, and you pressed your fingers down on those thin metal steel strings, and it hurt. 
you know, and you go, I don't know if I want to do this, and you, and because it, it hurt. But what you discover is the more you practice, the more you do it over time, you begin to build calluses on those fingertips. Your fingers become desensitized to the pain by continual exposure. And this is what happens to our consciences. You probably think back. You can probably all remember something that you did somewhere in life that you, when you did it for the first time, you felt guilty about it. I told you about feeling guilty about going to the movies for the first time. After being told, seemed like forever in my Christian life up to that point, that God would be very unhappy with me. Well, guess what? Years later, you know, 40 years later, I can walk into a movie theater and I can watch a movie. As long as there's no graphic sex and language in it, I can walk in and watch just about any movie and I don't feel guilty. I want to go see Captain America. And I don't feel guilty about that. But, you know, if you keep it at something long enough, the guilt eventually, like your fingertips on a guitar player, the guilt eventually goes away, whether that thing is okay or whether that thing is bad. The guilt will go away. And yet, then once the guilt goes away and there's no more pain, then you can say, but I have a clear conscience about this. And this might be, Christian, this might be, in only one area of your life where this is happening. In other words, every other part of your life might be, God might be smiling on, but there might be this one thing, this one secret thing that nobody else knows about, but you've done it over and over again so you don't feel guilty about it. And so it becomes for you your blind spot. Does that mean then that because you don't feel guilt that it's not a Christ-honoring thing that you're doing? No, no. But what it means is that your conscience has been desensitized and calloused, and you're beyond, once you get that way, you're beyond feeling guilt about it. And that can be a very bad thing if what you're doing is not a good thing, because here's what happens. Once I become callous to something that I used to see as wrong, it's almost impossible for me to understand what all the fuss is about when someone tries to point out the error of my way. I no longer get it because my ability to feel guilt is gone. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He spoke about false teachers, and he said they're hypocrites and they're liars. And he said, and they have a seared conscience. A seared conscience. Their conscience had become callous. They could not see their own hypocrisy. They could not hear the, the, the falseness of their own teaching because their consciences were beyond that. Here's what too often, sadly, happens in the church, in the body of Christ. If someone who's often in an area of life where they should not be, if someone else comes up to that person and confronts them about that area of your life that's violating God's word, if that person has done it over and over and repeatedly and they become calloused to it, they, they'll probably only listen to you say that one time. We've had so many people uh, that, I, that I've seen in my life that, that we've gone to and said, hey, you can't be doing this. This is just a clear violation of Scripture. You know this is wrong, but they've done it so often that they, they just turn it off and they leave and never come back. Why? Calloused conscience. But you know, the prisons are filled with people who let their consciences guide them. Business people 
lie routinely to make a sale, and they think it's part of the deal. I remember working, one of the first jobs I got when I moved to the Outer Banks in 1986, I got a job working behind the, the front desk at a, at a brand new motel in Kildovel Hills. Nice place, and, and uh, first time I ever worked in a, in a motel like that, taking reservations, and when people come in, checking them in and doing those kinds of things. And I remember listening to the manager. He was an old-season motel manager, and, and listening to him. Every now and then, I'd hear him tell things to customers that I knew wasn't exactly the way it was about a room availability or about the price of a room. And I listened to that, and, and one day he pulled me off to the side, and he knew I was a Christian, he knew I was a preacher, and he pulled, pulled me off to the side. I'll never forget he had this talk with me. It didn't last very long because he said, now, Rick, I want you to understand, I'm, I'm, not, gonna ask, I'm not asking you to lie. And I stopped him before he could say, but I said, good, because I won't. You know, if people ask me if the, if the room is available and it's available, I'm going to tell them yes. If this is the price of the room, I'll tell them yes, this is the price of the room, but I'm not going to lie for you or anybody else. Some of you think, did he fire you? No, I think maybe I gained his respect. You ever go to an auto mechanic who charged you for work that didn't need to be done or charged you for work that he didn't do? Has anybody, anybody else ever had that happen to him? Functional drunks defend their right to abuse alcohol because they think they're not hurting anybody. Husbands are addicted to porn. And they think it's something that, well, it's just what every man does. Huge numbers of Christians are living in extramarital sexual relationships and claim that sexual purity is unrealistic in today's culture, and it's old school. And some of those kinds of people are in the church proclaiming to be Christ followers. You know what they all have in common? Whether it's the guys in prison or the Christians. You know what what we all have in common when we get that way? What we have in common is this. We defend our actions as being appropriate. They're convinced, as one couple that that I counseled, we were talking about counseling, as one couple, man and woman that I counseled, told me, their words were, God understands. Even if he doesn't approve, he understands. And because their consciences were clear, that's what they meant. But a clear conscience, hear me, a clear conscience may simply be a conscience that isn't working at all. Your conscience can be a warning system. It tells us we're violating our own moral standards, and that's good. Better, however, is to know God's standards. Better, however, is to follow God's standards. And to let God and his word, not your conscience, be your guide. Psalm 119 Verses 9 through 11, the psalmist writes this. He asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? There's a lot of men in here. And you can relate to what the question that the psalmist is asking because you've been a young man and you know how young men's minds think. How can a young man keep his way pure? And he gives the answer, and the answer is by keeping your word. I have sought you with all my heart, Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart. Why? So that it can overcome. I've treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Let's pray.
We're, we're every day, Lord, given choices to make, decisions to make about things that, that may be right and may be wrong. And Lord, we want to know the right thing to do. But if we trust, your word says, if we trust our own hearts, we can be deceived. So Lord, our prayer today as believers is may we get to know your word and find the truth that's there. And may we be filled with your spirit and be sensitive to him as he nudges our conscience, as he shapes and molds our path and directs us and gives us light. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to become calloused to things that are what you've defined as wrong. So help us, God, to realize the difference between the thermostat and the thermometer. Help us to see the seesaw. Help us to know that we can constantly be resetting that thermostat the wrong way or the right way. And may we be led by the truth of your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.